Any signs of life, I assume? Annie asked the young constable, making his way through the undergrowth beside her. The paramedic did, Mum, he answered, as best he could without disturbing the scene. He paused. But you don't have to get that close to see that he's dead. A man, then. Annie ducked under the police tape and inched forward. Twigs snapped under her feet, and last autumn's leaves crackled. She didn't want to get so close that she might destroy or contaminate any important trace evidence, but she needed a clearer idea of what she was dealing with. As she stopped, about ten feet away, she could hear a golden plover whistling somewhere nearby. Further up, towards the moorland, a curlew piped its mournful call. Closer by, Annie was aware of the officer panting behind her after their trot up the hill, and of the lightest of breezes soughing through leaves too fresh and moist to rustle. Then there was the absolute stillness of the body. Annie could see for herself that he was a man now. His head was closely shaved, and what hair remained had been dyed blonde. He wasn't twisting at the end of the rope, the way corpses do in movies, but hanging, heavy and silent as a rock, from the taut yellow clothesline, which had almost buried itself in the livid skin of his neck, now an inch or two longer than it had originally been. His lips and ears were tinged blue with cyanosis. Burst capillaries dotted his bulging eyes, making them appear red from where Annie was standing. She guessed his age at somewhere between forty and forty-five, but it was only a rough estimate. His fingernails were bitten or cut short, and she saw the cyanosis there, too. He also seemed to have a lot of blood on him for a hanging victim. Most hangings were suicides, Annie knew, not murders, for the obvious reason that it was very difficult to hang a man while he was still alive and kicking. Unless it was the work of a lynch mob, of course, or he had been drugged first. If it was a suicide, why had the victim chosen this particular place to end his life? Annie wondered. This tree? Did it have strong personal associations for him, or had it simply been convenient? Had he ever realised that children might find him and what effect seeing his body might have on them? Probably not, she guessed. When you're that close to ending it all, you don't think much about others. Suicide is the ultimate act of selfishness. Annie knew she needed the scenes of crime officers here as soon as possible. It was a suspicious death, and she would be far better off pulling out all the stops than jumping to the conclusion that nothing much need be done. She took out her mobile and rang Stefan Novak, the crime scene manager, who told her to wait and said he'd organise his team. Next, she left a message for Detective Superintendent Catherine Gervais, who was in a meeting at County HQ in North Allerton. It was too early to determine the level of investigation yet, but the super needed to know what was happening. Then there was Banks, Detective Chief Inspector Alan Banks, her immediate boss, 
who would normally be senior investigating officer on something as serious as this. Should she call him? He had taken off early for the weekend, driving down to London that morning to stay with his girlfriend. Annie couldn't complain. Banks had plenty of time off due to him, and she herself had recently got back from a two-week stay with her father in St. Ives, mostly sketching and lounging around on the beach, convalescing and recharging after a traumatic period in her life. In the end, she decided that Banks could wait. It was time to get back to the river and see what Winsome had found out from the kids. Poor buggers, Annie thought, as she tottered down the slope behind the patrol officer, arms out to keep her balance. On the other hand, kids were resilient, and when they got back to school on Monday morning, they'd have one hell of a story to tell their mates. She wondered whether English teachers still handed...